Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So 10 years ago, I rediscovered gangs in Los Angeles and fell in love with them once again, which seems like an absurd choice of words, but it is absolutely the truth. Um, there's a saying of Ralph Waldo Emerson's that every book was once a poem. And in fact, this book was once a poem, and the poem is the existence of these young men and women that is marked by, exactly as the subtitle says, violence, drugs, love, and redemption. Now, I don't want to glamorize this, and I don't want to, in any way, shape, or form, give you the idea that the existence of gangs or the lives of gang members are the stuff of TV series and rap music and movies. They are not. Their lives are marked by poverty, which you must first understand. Their lives are also marked, and I want to be very, very clear about this, their lives are marked by violence. And I don't mean the violence that they simply commit, because you would lack any sort of understanding if you said gang members are violent by nature. This is not true. The fact of the matter is they all grow up in worlds of violence where there is, I am sad to say, child abuse, neglect, domestic violence, and it is normative. It is part of their everyday lives. It surrounds them. I often say that if I grew up in that kind of a setting, with that kind of violence, with that kind of poverty, I would have absolutely positively no choice but to be a gang member myself. And I have no doubt about it that I would be one. And given my own personality and my own aggressiveness and the way I am, I'm convinced I'd be a shot caller. So, and I have no shame about saying that. And I try to remind my husband of that on a nightly basis. So, now, you need to also understand that juxtaposed with these lives of violence, there are also people that are growing up in this environment who have incredible talents and incredible gifts and incredible understanding. I wrote about one young man who had wound up in prison after becoming a major drug distributor. And the stories that he told me and the way he described his drug distribution network I could close my eyes and I would think I was listening to the CEO of Target. He talked about marketing, he talked about product, he talked about how to move his inventory, and I didn't know if I was with a gang member or with someone who had recently been awarded an MBA from UCLA. And you need to understand that there is that fundamental similarity between all of us. But where I found the most profound similarity in this journey was as I listened to the lives of the gang members, and by the way, the people that I profile are both male and female. Make no mistake about it. Right now the Department of Justice says that about 10 to 12 percent of all gang members are female. And I listened to women and to men tell me their stories about their lives, and yes, there was violence, and yes, there was incarceration. But surprisingly, they were also people who fell in love, people who had children, people who wanted to raise families, people who wanted better for their children than they had for themselves. 
And their wishes and their dreams and their desires resonated with me. And they resonated with me for a very particular reason. And I'm very candid about this in this book. They resonated with me because just as I began to study them and work with them in 2002, I embarked on an entirely new life of my own. I had been married for a very long time, very unsuccessfully, and when I ended that marriage after 20 years, which of course I was married when I was 15 years old, I don't want you guys to have any illusion about that. Anyway, you should laugh here. Um, <laughs> After that marriage ended, I had absolute, excuse me, absolutely no intention of ever marrying again. I had a very interesting life. I did a lot of work overseas for the United Nations in war zones. And it was an interesting life, and it was an exotic life, and I had lots of boyfriends and men who were going to be boyfriends and men who had been boyfriends and wonderful family and a wonderful life. And you know the old saying, man plans and God laughs? It's ultimately true in terms of what I experienced. So at the same time that I was studying gangs, I fell madly in love with the man who was going to end up to be my husband, who is, who suffers me and my life and my passions, who's right here, my husband Mark, who's an amazing man. And there I was, studying gangs, dressed in black, in South LA, with my little hard-ass attitude, and who should I fall in love with but a commander from the Los Angeles Police Department. And when they say opposites attract, they were absolutely positively right. But there was a kicker to this arrangement. Not only was my husband-to-be, the love of my life, a member of the LAPD command staff, he came with a dividend. And the dividend came out of some sadness, but turned out to be the greatest joy of my life. Mark was a widower when I met him, and he had a little, tiny, mischievous, beautiful daughter. And so, as one of my friends said, Mark and his daughter were my instant family. And I am really lucky tonight because our daughter, who I later legally adopted and became a part of my life in ways I cannot even begin to describe to you, is here with us tonight. So over here is my beloved daughter, Shannon who's undoubtedly just wanting to kill me now. Now, I tell you all of this not to present you with my family scrapbook, but because I am very, very candid about how my life with them unfolded as I was studying gangs in Los Angeles. And there were parallels, and there was divergence, but there was time when I talked about my relationship with Mark, how I worried about raising Shannon, and I was talking to stone-cold gangbangers about what I was doing. And I had people who would say to me, what are you doing? And what I was doing was the most precious thing of all, which was relating and learning and finding out about their lives, learning about my life, and sort of encountering a journey that I could never have imagined in my wildest dreams. So this book that I'm sure as you all have known or have found out, the proceeds of which are going to benefit Homeboy Industries, which is one of the places that is described in the book, among many other places in Los Angeles. This book represents many aspects of life and it represents many aspects of love. And most importantly, it represents many aspects of redemption. Personal redemption for me, the redemption that I saw young men and young women struggle for in their own lives, 
and the redemption that all of us need to encounter. Not in a spiritual way, not in a religious way. The redemption we need to encounter when we recognize that we are all the same, that we breathe the same air, that we have the same dreams and desires for our children, that we all want to share in a better world. Now, I could go on and on, I could read passages from the book, but I think it would mean so much more to everybody in the room if you could hear, however briefly, from one of the quite extraordinary people I have gotten to know. Now, I'll give you a fair warning. The person I'm going to introduce is not in the book. He's somebody that I have gotten to know in the past couple of years. So I don't want you to buy the book and go home and try to figure out who he is because he'll probably be in my next book. But this is a young man that I have had the great privilege to encounter, to get to know, to work beside. And he has a story and an understanding of gang life up close and personal to invoke the cliché. And so I want to turn the microphone over for just a few moments to somebody who I love and admire. I don't want him to tell you about his old life. I want him to tell you about his new life and what he does with his life now, what his family is like, and what he does as someone who's a pivotal person at Homeboy Industries. So to illustrate, to teach, for you to hear yet another story, it's my great pleasure this evening to introduce Wilfredo Lopez. Wow, that was a long introduction, and <laughs> thank you so much, um, man. So uh, my name is Wilfredo Lopez, and I'm not in the book, but I will be in the second one. <laughs> uh, get that out. Um, I want to thank Georgia first and foremost. Um, as she explained, so she's writing a book about gang members, and these are real gang members. She's worked with them. She's sat side by side. She's walked with them. So this is not something she's making up. Um, it's something true. This woman sits at Homeboy Industries and she'll sit there for hours and days and days and days and ask and look and see and find. And she's very good at finding things and finding things out. Um, so for myself, I won't say a lot about where I come from, but I come from the, the background she'll explain in the books. Uh, normal dysfunctional family, single mother, immigrated, domestic violence, abuse, all of that I had in my household. I joined a gang at 11, um, incarcerated from that, 15 all the way to 23, gang life. Um, and then I finally found my way to Homeboy Industries. Um, I was tired of being tired. And uh, once I got there, then the process began. I started finding who I really was, who I was really inside, a human being, like she said earlier, redemption, and finding yourself. So I found myself. Um, so today I'm no longer a gang member. Today I'm just Wilfredo Lopez, a human being, just like you guys are. A man, a father, a brother, a sister, a oh, yeah, sister. <laughs> I'll be a sister to some people. Um, but today I'm me. Um, and I was able to find that through the services that Homeboy Industries offers, but also through people like Georgia Leap. Um, Georgia Leap actually has a lot to do with my personal life because she actually extended her hands without even knowing who I was or what I was and actually got me a job at uh, UCLA at one point without even knowing. And she just said, I'm going to give him a shot. And she gave me a shot because she seen the human being in me. She didn't see the tattoos or the gang member or the where I came from or what I did. And she took me in. So it's people like that that uh, allowed me to find who I was. So today, who am I today? Today I'm a, I'm a father, I'm a husband, and I'm a brother. Today I have a job that's full time and I get paid every two weeks. Today I have a car and I pay a car note and I have car insurance. Like this morning I was in an accident. She's all worried, can you make it, can you make it? I was in an accident this morning and I had to call you know, my insurance company and say, hey, uh, I got in a car accident, I got the pin number, da, 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 da. So I'm able to do that. But before I didn't, before I would run from the incidents and I would run from the cops. Today I don't. Today I do the normal things. I call the insurance company. It's, it, it's not uh, do the jingle, but it's AAA, so they showed up. <laughs> Um, but that's who I am today. 
today I actually was sitting back there going through the books of Nietzsche and I was telling one of my old co-workers and I was telling him, he's like, okay, have you read this one? And I looked at the cover and I'm like, well, you know, in prison they don't let us have the covers. So I don't know what it looks like. I might have read it, but I never seen it. Today I'm able to come in this little library and look through books and they have covers. And he said, hey, uh, so it's true, huh? Don't judge a book by its cover. And that's what Georgia Leap does. She doesn't judge us by our covers, our tattoos. Next, Pack. past. That's what she said. Don't tell them about your past. Tell them who you are today. Today, I uh, facilitates groups at Homeboys, domestic violence groups for batters for 52 weeks. Today, I facilitate a group for creative writing where young men and women express their feelings and their life stories through poetry and writing. Today, I go out and speak to large crowds, small crowds, schools, universities, high schools. And I tell them my life story. And I explain my life story of redemption and finding myself. And I inspire a little bit of hope in some people's lives. Today, I talk to young men that are still in that gang lifestyle. And I try to let them know that, hey, look, learn from my mistake. You don't have to go through it. Just watch me. Um, today, I actually am, I help out at Homeboys and I mentor young men that are walking in through the doors. Where they're tired of being tired, where they're tired of the old lifestyle and they're saying, hey, I'm done. I don't want to do this no more. I'm tired of being in prison. So today I'm there and saying, hey, this works. These people are real. They really care. Today I, I ask that you guys open up your hearts, your minds, and your souls. Check out the book. Please get it. Buy it. Ask her a million and one questions. And I don't know if she's going to let me answer questions. I'll answer any question you guys have. But I won't disclose the neighborhood that I'm from. And the reason why I won't disclose is because it'll be glamorizing the lifestyle. And I just don't do that today. Today I glamorize my new lifestyle, which is my daughter, my wife, my family, and friends like Dr. Georgia Leap. Thank you guys for letting me share. The question I'm most frequently asked when I talk about my work and I describe what I do, people will say, how can you do that? Aren't you afraid? Aren't you scared? Aren't you terrified? And my question is answered when I listen to Wilfredo, when I engage with the people who are described in this book. How could I not do this? How could I not be amazed constantly by their lives, by their struggle, by what they deal with, by their resilience? They do not merely survive. The gang members that I know have had funny, sad, tragic, amazing lives. In this book, there is death. In this book, there is struggle. And in this book, there are people who do not merely survive. They are people who prevail. They are people that we need to look at and marvel at and understand with all our hearts. And I think that rather than going on and talking with you about my perceptions, I think it'll be much more interesting for us to have a conversation. And Noelle is going to ask me some questions, because we've talked a little bit about the book. And then we're going to open it up to you for questions. And yes, you can ask me or ask Will, because I could never, ever have this book. I could never, ever have written this book without the sharing and the openness. And I want to stress this, the absolute trust and faith in me that these former gang members, well, both active and former, exhibited. And I am forever in their debt because of that. So thank you. And we'll talk a little bit about the book. I'll have Noelle ask me some questions. And then perhaps you can as well. Great. Let's applaud them first. Really. Thank you both. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And I guess when, when I, I, I first heard about the book, one of the things I was really curious about was maybe that some of the challenges you, you experienced as a woman and someone who was um, maybe some of the cultural barriers you may have experienced too. Well, and I think that's, that's the great question because that's always the one that accompanies Weren't you afraid? <laughs> and there really is, there's a problem with being a woman. There was some problem with being white, although the irony is, I would say I was Greek, which I am. I am 100% um, a purebred Greek woman. <laughs> and how many of you saw my big fat Greek wedding? 
Okay, it's a documentary, all right? <laughs> That's my family. Anyway, uh, so that my whiteness wasn't an issue, but being a very small woman in this environment was in fact scary. And I couldn't do what a man would do. I always had what I would loosely refer to as a bodyguard. I always had a gang member, whether active or former, with me. Because you can go into different areas and they are, as, as one of my favorite young women, Shamika, will tell me, they're tricky. And there are places that look very bucolic and very nice and very pleasant. There's housing developments, there's little neighborhoods, and if you walk down the wrong street at the wrong time, even during the daytime, you could run into something you're not supposed to see. You could be somewhere very much where you are not supposed to be. So, and the other thing is, I like to go out at night, and I like to see the activity that was happening in Los Angeles very late at night. So it's not something I can do driving my little Prius. And what I wound up doing was, I would always have gang members with me. And they took care of me. They protected me. There were, I will not lie, there were some dicey situations. Uh, I have a gang member I work with. His name is Big Mike. And let me tell you, he lives up to his moniker. He weighs 350 pounds. And I never feel so safe as when I am with Big Mike and kind of hide under the crook of his arm. So I had to be very innovative. And what I wound up doing was I had a gang member with me all the time, wherever I went, whenever I went there. I still do it. I really, and by having somebody with me, I had a guide with me who would explain what things meant. And I could never have learned it on my own. And when you look at the title of the book, it's implicit in the title. It's what I learned. It's what I was taught. I don't know anything. I'm the student. And so I would have these people with me, taking me through the neighborhood and, or the neighborhoods, and teaching me about what was going on. And I can tell you, I have multiple degrees. I have a nice little PhD in, after my name. And there is no education I have ever received in my life like the education I received from these people. It was fantastic. It goes on. It still goes on in my life. And for that, I am grateful. Great. Um, with Wilfredo here, maybe I can ask a question to the both of you, because I know um, I work in the community, a lot of community work, and sometimes every once in a while, <laughs> every once in a while, someone, you know, someone with a PhD or somebody, you know, an academic will come, will come and want to work inside a community, and this is we want to work inside of community. So can you talk about the importance of trust building? Um, and to maybe Wilfredo, how, if, if one of the students says, hey, I want to do some work in, in, mm -hmm. in the community, you know, how should we best approach you? What, 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 what would be some of the advice that the both of you would give to, to students or people who, who are considering doing that kind of research? I'm going to let Wilfredo speak first. Because you know me, I'm opinionated as can be. Go for it. I can be opinionated too. Um, I think depending on the, uh, what do you call that, uh, the area or the location of the, I mean, if you happen to come through Homeboy Industries, the first guy that greets you, he'll smile at you and say, hey, how can we help you? Um, but if you go into a neighborhood and you say, hey, can I talk to you guys? You know, the group of guys are hanging out right there. I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> because they're going to look at you and say, are you the police? Or what are you trying to do? Are you trying to get some information? Now, perfect scenario, Homeboy Industries, Dr. George Leap, or you know somebody that knows somebody, then that's a way to get in. But you approaching and say, hey, my name is Tom, and I wanted to ask you a few questions. When they're standing in the corner of the block, it's not a good idea. Um, and that's just the truth. And it is the truth. And I have very strong feelings about this, because I know people that will say to me, can you take us to meet some gang members? And I think, what are you talking about? Is it like, you know, we're going to we're gonna go to Disneyland and we're going to be, you know, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs? And it is delivered very much in that tone. I want to meet one. I want to meet one. I want to have an interview with them. No. The real way to know and to understand is to sit down with them. And I think, I think, for example, a place like Homeboy, where they work, where they exist, that is a place to do it. I can also tell you that while they may not be in this room, they are places that we go to. You know where you sh can meet somebody who's from a neighborhood? 
a Dodger game, a Laker game, Starbucks. You absolutely, you might, you might. They're around you. And they're not to be differentiated as gang members. One of the great joys in my life is I'm very curious about people. And in fact, it drives my husband crazy. But I'm perfectly happy talking to a total stranger. So in interviewing or trying to learn about gang members, it's better to go where they are and as Wilfredo said so brilliantly, to ask someone to introduce you, to be part of a group that's talking with them because I would urge you to imagine how would you like it if someone came into your life and said, I, I really want to talk to someone from LA. Can I talk to you? It's not that type of a thing. It really has to be, and I believe this with all my heart, it has to be relational. And you have to approach people in that way. So if you want to know, if you want to understand, it is a matter of looking around you. We are in LA, for better or for worse, we have more gang members and former gang members in this city and county than anywhere else in the United States. And they're not staying only in their neighborhoods or in one location. They're part of our lives. Great. Can you uh, perhaps talk about um, something that surprised you in the work that you were doing? Something that you, oh, I never expected that. I never thought that, you know, I, I know, you know? Just what, I know just what surprised me. <laughs> Lesbians. <laughs> I'm serious. One of the things, <laughs> They're probably saying, did she just say that? What is she talking about? One of the things that surprised me, I had heard a lot about homophobia. I had heard a lot, and as you would imagine, within neighborhoods or gangs, whether African American or Latino, there, you would expect there to be, with the, the macho aspect of the culture, you would expect there to be some degree of homophobia. Now, I will admit, I have seen one individual who was out who was gay, a gay man, who said he was formerly a gang member. But what I was astonished is, as I began to meet and talk and sort of fall in love with the women that I was interviewing and living with, many of them were lesbians. And many of them were in love and had girlfriends. And they were out and they were open. And by the way, they were black and they were brown. And what surprised me, and what I was not prepared for was, it was completely open, it was completely accepted, and it was integrated within gang life in ways that I never would have imagined. And that's what was shocking to me and surprising. Now, the other surprise will be more obvious when I share it with you, which is, what was surprising to me was how deeply and passionately I fell in love with this, this group of people, this population. They became part of my chosen families in ways, my chosen family in ways that I could never ever have envisioned. And despite the hardship and the violence and the pain, they enlarged my life in ways and continue to enlarge my life in ways that I never could have anticipated. So that was the surprise, both of those. All right. Um, and maybe for you both is like, so what's some basic advice for someone, you know, um, who wants to get out of gang life? I mean, what would you say? What would you, you know, what do you say to someone who? Uh, for somebody who's trying to get out of the gang life, I would say there's hope. And I would say it's possible. Um, believe in the impossible and believe that you can change and, uh, and uh, believe in yourself. That's what I would tell somebody that wants to change. Uh, or I would just tell them, you can do it. I believe in you. Yes, the other thing that I would say, and I, I, I think Will has just eloquently talked about the affective or the emotional part of it. The other part of it is, it's almost a truism that you cannot take something away without putting something in its place. And what I would say to anyone who wanted to leave the neighborhood or wanted to leave a gang is, this is wonderful, I love you, I embrace you. What are you going to replace the gang with? Because 
You know, a vacuum is always filled. One of the things, interestingly, sadly, but important for all of us to know and consider is, what do you think most frequently replaces the gang in the life of a young man or young woman who seeks to leave the gang life? What do you think replaces the gang? Prison. Prison, that often is involuntarily. It's not cho involuntary, it's not chosen. Families. Family, we would want it to be family. The sadness is what I don't say most frequently, but often replaces the gangs, are drugs. And there's a very good reason why. Every single person who has been in a gang or has been affiliated with a gang should have post-traumatic stress disorder sort of stamped metaphorically in their life because these are people who have experienced trauma. And when you experience trauma, you need to take care of yourself. And one of the most common ways people take care of themselves is to self-medicate. And they use drugs in order to do this. So what I would want to say to a gang member, or what I would want to say as part of the journey back, is that you need to put something in place of the gang life. That is, for better or for worse, quite honestly, what a place like Homeboy Industry does. It puts another community in place of the gang life. And any program that is successful, and I've looked at them across the United States, any program that is truly successful puts another family, another community, another series of relationships in the place of the gang. Without that, how could you leave? I could not. If I was going into a void, if I was going into nothingness, I would go running back to the gang because that would be home for me. So their struggle and our struggle is to provide something that will fill their lives in the place that the gang once held. Um, and Scott, you were talking about that, some of the, the models you looked at, at, at you know, there, there are gang prevention um, programs right around Los Angeles. And we're talking about one of the ways to 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 work with gangs is to is to exchange them. So um, we all know that um, California, Los Angeles has a shortfall mm -hmm. <laughs> in funds. Mm -hmm. You know, so some of those um, programs or models may not be there. Um, so what else can be done? Be you know that an ordinary person can do if uh, social scientists and social programs aren't there anymore. Well, I don't want to turn this into an academic evening. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. Um, what I'll tell you is, I don't, and trust me, I'm a yellow dog Democrat. I'm the third generation in my family to, to be a Democrat, so I don't want you to think I'm suddenly spouting a Republican line. It doesn't take, it takes money. But I truly believe the solution, whether preventive or intervention, having somebody re-enter society, the solution is very simple and impossibly complicated. The solution is relational. The solution is attachment. We have to find ways through schools, through communities, for what we do for people to provide attachments for them and relationships for them that will stand in the place of the gang. I don't want to get into a big policy discussion. I think it's an important question. But really what I want to talk about are the feelings and the understanding that we all need to have. Now, I'm not sitting here telling you, okay, go out now and hug a homie, all right? I don't mean that. <laughs> and in some cases, I don't want you to. I really don't want you to. But I think we've got to understand that underlying all of gang existence is pain. This is not about guns and excitement and force and glamour. This is about pain. And I think if we reach into our own lives, pain is solved by attachment and relationships. My guess is if I ask every single person in this room, and I'm not going to, if I asked each and every one of you what was the most painful thing you went through in your life, the most traumatic, the most devastating, the way you came out of it was through the relationships you possessed and the people who supported you. And once again, my, man, my message is, and this is what is just implicit and explicit in my book, it is no different for any of these young men and young women. So the short answer or the long answer to the short question is, 
if we dealt more with relationships, whether it was in school, all the way through the community and our families, we would see a lot less gang violence and a lot more productivity. Because here's my question for all of you. How much have we lost as a society for young men and young women who have been killed? Young men and young women who had talents, who had aptitudes, who were musicians, who were mothers, who were fathers, who were teachers, who have we lost because of this plague? And that's why we've got to think about that and think about the relationships that will ensure that this doesn't happen in the future. Great. Too many questions from the audience. Um, I definitely agree with you that, that the community is you know, the most important part. Um, I guess my question is for both of you. It's, it's seeing as how the community is pivotal in uh, keeping people away from the gang once they get out. Mm -hmm. How do you guys break through the, I guess for lack of a better term, the veil of secrecy surrounding uh, gang codes and, and things of that nature? to get people to relate with one another from differing backgrounds and perhaps differing gangs in order to form these relationships. Mm. Okay, so the question, yeah, yeah, I was just saying, yeah. yeah. Can you repeat the for question, me. repeat the question so for the me. podcast, thank you. I, I want to apply, yeah, I'm like, it's like, you'll be tested on this at the end of the evening. My, my inner, you know, instructor comes out. Um, the question really is, you want to help people, how do you sort of pierce the veil of secrecy, and I'll, I'll sort of elaborate, sort of the in-group, you know, gangs, gangs have in-groups. We all have in-groups. We all have secret handshakes. We all have secret codes. My husband, who's now retired, you know, when he was still working with the LAPD, I would always say, they're just a gang with uniforms. So, um, so in this case, how do, we, how do we pierce the veil? So I'm going to mix it up here and I'll answer first and then I'll pass it over to Wilfredo instead of always forcing him to answer first. My reaction is you don't. You don't. It, we have secrets. We have lives. We have things that we keep inside of ourselves. You don't need to pierce the veil. You need to present an alternative. So that those secrets, those rituals, that life doesn't have as much meaning as the alternative. Because if we work too hard, people are always saying to me, well, did you find out what all the signs mean? No. To this day, if someone throws a gang sign, I can't always tell what it means. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Do I know what they mean emotionally when they mad dog somebody? Yes. Do I know how to break through that when I'm talking to them? Absolutely. Do I know what secrets to stay away from? You better believe it. And I think privacy is important. I think everyone deserves their privacy, perhaps this group more so than others. And so piercing the veil, figuring it out, knowing what a gang sign means, not as important. What's important is, what's the alternative you can point to? And also, what are the secrets that they really have in their lives that they need to tell you? I can tell you this. I, I don't know about gang signs, but there are people who have confided in me when they killed someone. And I know about this. And they've talked to me about it. And that's what I'm sort of more interested in relating to than what are the secrets of their particular neighborhood and what's gone on within, you know, the Grape Street Crips or the Bounty Hunter Bloods or whatever group you're talking about. So I kind of leave it alone. Can you translate the question? <laughs> um, if I if I get what you're saying is you're trying to, um, how do you get past like all the secrecy and the codes and the whole like these people don't talk to them, it's what's going on, right? Um, and I think Georgia hit it right on the money um, because as soon as you approach either a gang member or an ex-gang member or somebody who's affiliated and you start asking those questions and you know the questions like, hey, so is it true that or when somebody does this, do they, when you start doing that, uh, a homie, a gang member, ex-gang member will automatically put a wall up and say, okay, I know what you're here for. You know, you just want to get these 
these quote-unquote answers about this or and most of the time it's news reporters or the want articles and want to write good articles or books or I just got this it happened to me when I was a little kid and I didn't even know it was happening and next you know there's an article in the some newspaper and I was like oh well I didn't mean to say none of that so automatically they'll shut down and put a wall but like Georgia Leap said it's it's important because I think that's not as important as what's really inside, that's a secret inside the person. Because every gang member that's joined a gang didn't join a gang because they were hopeful to become uh, the best gang member in the world. No, they became gang members because they had something broken inside. So I think that's the secret you want to get to. Um, and a successful homie that makes it out of a gang and actually stays out of the gang is that homie that went into and worked on that secret. I said, this is my secret, you know, this is the trauma, this is the abuse, this is what I didn't want to talk about. And some will come and say, hey, Georgia, you know, my mom abused the shit out of me when I was five, and that shit really bothers me, and I wanted to tell you that. Compared to the homie going to his homie, like, hey, spider, you know, my mom used to abuse me when I was a kid. <laughs> they don't care, because they have their own little secret. And throughout life, you go to prison, more secrets come in. You go to the streets, more secrets come in. You become a drug addict, more secrets come in. You do things you're not proud of. So I think those are the ones you want to, uh, what was that, puncture through the veil? I, I kind of get it, you know? So it's like, those are the ones you want to puncture through and get to. Yeah, very true. Okay. Other questions? Uh, I want to make a, uh, a comment on your husband and yourself now. Uh, have to admire what done. Uh, here's a guy that's kind of on the other side. Of the <laughs> the red lights are flashing and, and mm -hmm. position and the guts that it takes for him to go in there and do his job and, and, and try to help the community. And now, you know, because of his background and what you've explained, you've been brief. Uh, I'm Armenian, my background. Oh, the same. <laughs> the same. Fat Greek wedding. Or the Armenian wedding. Yeah. see that. It's the same. You're right. Yeah. But I have, a, I have a question that's a little bit off topic, but I think it's okay. how, how did, first of all, you chose, I guess, the Hispanic or Mexican gangs. But you know, uh, when my parents came here as immigrants, uh, they were proud, they assimilated into society, they tried to do the right thing, we only talked to our being in the house. Mm -hmm. You never did things outside the house, you mm -hmm. never did stayed mm -hmm. within the family and the structure. But when you, you know, what was it when in Roman do as the Romans? Mm -hmm. And things have changed that way. I mean, I grew up in a, in a black neighborhood in Ohio mm -hmm. that was, um, I mean, today, I mean, you go back there, it, it's a gang, I mean, it's gang infested. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. never saw it then. Mm -hmm. um, we had a fight, we fought it out. We didn't fight with guns, so the drugs were maybe marijuana in those days. My question is to the point, um, now I see Armenian gangs, mm -hmm. I see Lithuanian gangs, mm -hmm. I see, you know, all these Russians coming over right. here. Right. Mm -hmm. um, is, the, is it still a common thread? I mean, is it the same thing is it that you described as to why a child turns to, to getting involved in a gang? Mm -hmm. Or is there, to mm -hmm. me, I see this almost this mm -hmm. fight to be the top gang, the, the mm -hmm. smartest businessmen, you know, mm -hmm. using illegal things to, to gain wealth. And, mm -hmm. And ground, so to speak. Uh, have you studied that at all? Or that well, let me. I'm, I'm going to take. Okay, I'm going to parse everything you said here because I'm going to. I'm going to back up to what you said about my husband first, and then we're going to get into the gangs because um, this gentleman really has hit on something, and um, I'm very, very blunt in the book about how much we fought. And people said, "Oh my God, it sounded terrible," and I said, "You cannot imagine which what did not make the book." So, um, but I will tell you. Uh, as I said, when opposites do attract, but it did make, it did cause me to question constantly what I was doing because Mark did bring an entirely different sensibility into my life. And I really looked at this through a prism with many perspectives. Now, that actually helps in the answering of the second question. There are two types of gangs, and we got to be clear about it. And the other thing is, you said I focused on Mexican gangs, but ironically, my, my background and what I know much more about are African-American gangs, where I've spent the preponderance of my life, and that's the community I've worked in primarily. And there's enormous differences between black and brown gangs. 
huge. Then you're talking about things like the Armenian Mafia, the Russian Mafia, Lithuanian gangs. They are completely different from the street gangs we are talking about. They are not the same animal. They are not the same vegetable. They are different. They are organized. They are ethnic. But you're talking about organized crime at a completely different level. Um, Father Greg Boyle likes to talk about disorganized crime. And I agree with him. The kind of youth street gangs we're talking about are much more, they are younger. They are not corporate. They are not, with a few exceptions, they are not transnational. And they do not commit crimes to the extent or at the level of Russian, Armenian, many of these types of gangs. So we're discussing two totally separate topics. And I got to tell you, our street gangs in Los Angeles are younger. And they're not only biologically younger, they're psychologically younger. In a way they are, and I'm going to use this word advisedly, they are more innocent. It is not organized corporate crime. It is, as Will said, young men and young women who are running away from something, who have been brutalized when they are young. So it's two different characterologically separate entities. Um, in your experience, It's pretty funny. I, I now have a reputation. The is how long did it take? Yeah. Yeah. How long did it take to kind of gain someone's confidence so that they would talk to me? Thank you. I forgot to repeat it. I'm sorry. So how long did it take to gain that trust? And I was laughing because now I've been around doing this so long that people will come up and s they, they, they'll do it at Homeboy because I do a lot of interviewing there. They do it a lot at South LA and Jordan Downs where I do a lot of work with former gang members there. They'll come running up to me now and say, you're, you're the lady who interviews, can I talk to you about my life? So it's very funny. That, but how long does it take? It's like everyone in this room. How many people in this room know someone, not necessarily you, how many people in this room know someone that's gone to therapy? Okay, come on, this is LA. Let's be honest, all right? Okay. There's some people that go to therapy and they go the first day and they're blah, 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 and everything starts coming out immediately. There's some people who go to therapy years and years and years and it never comes out, okay? There's no rhythm. There are some people that I just happen to be the vessel at that moment that they could talk with. There are some people that I've started to talk with and it's very clear to me that they're so brutalized I can't go further and I'll stop. It takes what it takes, and I know that's a cliche, every person I know, every gang member I know has their own rhythm. They'll open to me immediately, and sometimes it will take months. I've also had people come and tell me, you know what I told you three months ago? That was a lie. I'm going to tell you the real story now. So one of the things that makes this work so joyful is I never know how long it's going to take and when they're going to open, but I can tell you this. In the vast majority of cases, they are because they want to relate and they want to talk. It's a great question, would for which there's no answer. Would you say, though, what I think is, is, is really wonderful about the work, and I think for any, any researcher or anyone trying to do this kind of work in the field, is that, is that you just don't you know, literally do a, a drive-by, right? You just go in and then leave, right? You, you just stay, you stay, you come back, you're coming back all the time, you're, you know, you know that people trust you, like they say, they come back to you and they say, oh yeah, you're the one who, who interviews you, interviews people, you know, that you have, you know, can you talk about, you know, the, I guess, the length of, of years or time that you've been doing this and this, <laughs> you know, so that gives some idea? Oh yeah, there, there, I've been, this I, I embarked upon in 2002 and there are some gang members I have known literally for 10 years. There's also some 
gang members that I met up with that I knew in the 1980s that have now introduced me to their children. But I think what Noel just talked about, and Will alluded to this, reporters and researchers will come in and do a hit and run. They want the sexy story, they want something interesting, they want to learn about this, and then boom, they're gone. I'm very committed to two things. I'm very committed to staying in people's lives and helping them, and I am very committed to being as candid about my life as I ask them to be about theirs. So it's not just the length, it's the quality. So I'll have people ask me about my sex life with my husband, and depending on the question, I'll be honest with them, okay? Mark and Shannon now want to kill me, all right? So, okay. <laughs> but those of you that know me know this is tame compared to the way I usually talk, all right? Um, but I'm in it with them for the long haul. There are people that I'm their comadre, I bat I'm baptizing their babies, we go to their weddings, we go to their showers. They are part of my life. And for me, that is the ticket to ride in asking them about their lives and being a part of that. Um, I have to be very careful because I would probably empty our bank account if I didn't watch myself, but I really try in every way I can to give back to these individuals who are honoring me, and I do mean it in the most profound way, in sharing their lives with me. Uh, I could not imagine writing a book and taking the proceeds. That's why this book will go to Homeboy, the next book will go hopefully to another agency. They're part of my life, they're my chosen family. They, if you had seen Shannon's graduation party from high school, it was hilarious because it was Greeks and then it was people from UCLA and then it was members of Shannon's many families and then it was former gang members and you know they were all on the patio and I did look at Mark and say did you ever imagine it would turn out this way and he turned even wider than he originally appeared and said no I didn't so <laughs> any other questions Yes, my darling. Okay. Um, uh, would you say that was like the key um, ingredient? Okay, the key ingredient for you to be so successful was not to just go in there and interview them and act like you're studying their life like they are an animal, but to treat them like they are a human being and go in there and actually be their friend and not necessarily, I guess, I, I guess the helping them was, was may, maybe the main goal, but you actually just having a heart for them in general to just be in their life. And, and I mean, would you say that, that having a heart for them is, should, should be the reason to do it and not just to, not to just like act like they're like some, you know, lab rats or something like right. in there, just interview them and then leave? I guess this is, the, the, the question has the answer and it's a beautiful question. Uh, the gentleman asked, is your success or I would say by sort of my ability. Is it, is it due to the fact that you really related or felt for them as opposed to treating gang members like a science experiment? And let me be blunt. A lot of the time I'm not proud to be an academic. In fact, I don't, I'm not even an academic. Trust me, I stink. I really do. And UCLA kind of keeps me there on sufferance. And it's been 20 years and it's like, it's more like, okay, what are we, I'm like the crazy relative in the attic. UCLA puts up with me and it's okay. The answer to why did I succeed or why are they with me? I love them. I love them. I love Will knows it, I love them. And you can't manuf manufacture it. And you know, if someone loves you, if they're not attractive, if they're not interesting, if they're not your physical type, anyone can be worn down with love. Anyone, anyone in this room. And so I guess I'm very stubborn and persistent and I love them. And I, I have to believe they feel that because it's real for me. I'm also, I want to learn. So I love them and I want to learn and I don't know, maybe that's a secret to all relationships. I don't know. You can all quit therapy now. Okay. <laughs>
law. I'm looking forward to reading the book. Great. In my legal practice, I've been criminal. So sometimes I'm addressing the unfairness of the police department and the judicial system and how they came to be where they were. For instance, I currently have an appeal where a shooter was drive by about seven years mm -hmm. and one of the people who considered to be material to this particular shooting got 26 years. There we go. And two separated trials. 26 years versus seven. It's so unfair and I guess my question is in dealing with that, when you're trying to get away from this lifestyle and you get back, you still have the judicial system mm -hmm. and the police to deal with. Mm -hmm. How do you get past that, that new family or that new right. when you have to live for the next 50 years of your life with the police, with the judi mm -hmm. uh, judicial system? Mm -hmm. I want to say a couple things, and then I really am going to let Wilfredo answer this question, which is, even when, given the vagaries of the judicial system, which is so incredibly capricious and arbitrary, and here in big parentheses, bear with me, hearing this morning that the Supreme Court is hearing arguments about 14, should 14-year-old 14 children and I am going to use the word children, should 14-year-old children receive a sentence of life without possibility of parole? Now, the very fact that the Supreme Court needs to hear arguments about this is as absurd as the Republican attitude about contraception. You knew I was going to put that in here tonight, okay? Okay, so... Given the arbitrariness and the capriciousness of the legal and the judicial system, even when you decide to leave a gang, how then do you live the rest of your life with parole officers, with probation officers, with police officers, with judges who are waiting for you to fail? You are never an ex-felon. You're a felon. How do you live? And so I'm going to turn that question over to a braver and much more knowledgeable person than myself. You knew I was. <laughs> Should I repeat the question? <laughs> um, first, I want to thank you for what you do. Um, and that's on behalf of a lot of guys that maybe um, even tried to appeal their cases. And I actually lived amongst them when I was in prison. Um, and I just thought about a guy when you said working on appeals. Uh, he was 18 years old couldn't afford an appeals attorney and he threw it away. He said, I'll just do life. And that's what he's doing today. Um, and it's because he strongly believed that he didn't have a chance. You know, it's his word against the cops, it's his word against the system, the DA, whatever. How do you get back in and accept the community as it is, right? Because that's what it is. The police, the DA, the judges, the laws. Um, for me, and I only speak for myself, there's this thing called restorative justice. And restorative justice works on the individual. And for myself, um, I came to the understanding and taking responsibility for what part I had to do with the crime I committed. So same for this individual that's on this appeal. And when you're able to do that and recognize your part in whatever you did, whether it was sit in the car, show up, agree to get in the car, owning up that responsibility, saying I'm responsible for that much. And then everybody else is responsible for their own stuff. And giving that they give the opportunity to come back out here, what this does is it shows you and it brings you to this humanity and says, I'm only responsible for what I did. And the police, the DA, the C they're responsible for their jobs. And it's not their fault for what I did. And when you're able to do that, you come back out here, and I'm able to wave at the cops today and say, hey, they're doing their jobs. Now, if I do something wrong, then here it goes. Do I get that adrenaline every time I see them? Yes, I do. Does my heart start beating? Does my arms go like this? Yes, they do. But it's about living those challenges day by day and saying, I'm okay. I'm not doing nothing wrong. Is there injustice? Yes, there is. Do they still get pulled over? Yes, you do. But if you stand firm in believing that, hey, I'm not doing anything, and as long as you know it in your heart, then you'll be okay. 
But a lot of men and women that are incarcerated or been incarcerated or in the communities and they have this profile and say, yeah, this is, they're the enemies and we're, they're never going to get us. And da -da -da. So there's a bridge. That's why I say restoring justice, you restore a community when there's people in the middle, right? So it's like, here's Georgia. Her husband's a cop. Here's this gang member. <laughs> Good friend of mine. Right? It's not about them and him and then me. No, it's about us. So when you're able to build that and say, hey, look, Will, it's not about you and us. It's about us right here. We're, we're together in this. When they feel accepted, they don't worry about it. And when you're not doing anything wrong, what do you got to worry about? I just worry about crossing red lights just like you guys do, following the laws just like you guys do. Same thing. But it's, it's giving them that sense of feeling. I mean, is there going to be cops that are going to be cops? And like she said earlier, they're gang, mem they're gang members with batches. Yeah, you can believe that. But gang members are gang members too. At the end, we're human beings, and it's about giving them that much and saying, hey, look, you're a human being. And you'll find some good ones. You'll find some good attorneys. You'll find some good pro officers. You'll find some good. But at the end of it all, they're all human beings. And it's about finding that. That's great. By the way, and, and I'm Thea Virgie, one minute, I, I'm going to give you a, a caveat here. Um, my husband, as of this April, has been retired for five years. So he's LAPD in recovery, as I like to say at our house. Okay. So, so great. When I turned 50, as my 50th birthday gift, he registered Democrat. So believe me, there's, there's the love of my life. Thea Virgie. Yes. This might go back way to the beginning, and maybe both Wilfredo and you can come up on this. Does it do any good when there are problems in a home, like Wilfredo said? I don't know if you've ever heard of Magnolia House. Okay. Does that, is that give us courage for the future, that they stem the violence, they stem the way children should be brought up, they stem all that? And it is a tremendous program. But I wondered, has anything come out of it? Because I know they've been there a long time. Has it made a difference in who becomes a gang member then if you have that crux of family love and you teach the parents how to be good parents and you, you teach against violence and you do all this, right. will it make the difference? Okay, now this, this woman, Thea Virgie, who's my aunt, who has probably known me since I was in the womb, so if you want the real dirt, you have to talk to her, okay? Um, she asked a very, very important question. She asked about a program called Magnolia House, which is actually on the front lines of child abuse prevention. And that's one of their major aims, that they take families that are at risk or have had child abuse or violence in the past and try to teach them new ways of love, new ways of parenting. Does this really work? Does it stop gang violence, family violence, child abuse? And you know, I'm I'm gonna embarrass another person because there's a person standing right here, Tina Christie, who is one of my wonderful friends and colleagues and a sister at UCLA who's actually like an evaluation genius and she's mentioned in the book and she could tell you scientifically if it works or not. Um, she's Greek too so we're we are really related underneath you saying yeah. <laughs> um, but here's the problem how do you measure what doesn't happen? We know how many people get cancer but do we know how many people, because they didn't smoke cigarettes, didn't get cancer? Maybe yes, maybe no. So what I can tell you is we look at decreasing rates of child abuse and gang violence. And here's where I make my pitch. In the city of Los Angeles right now, we have a 40-year low in crime. We have the lowest crime we have had in the city of Los Angeles for 40 years, which is wonderful. And you're safe, and we're here, and you'll walk out to your car, and you'll be okay. Now, who do most people attribute the lowest crime in 40 years to? Who's the most often given the credit for? The police, the LAPD. They're the reason, yes. <laughs> I'll speak to you later. No. <laughs> but the reason 
We have 40-year low levels of crime, the lowest in 40 years, is, yes, the police, but Magnolia House that takes care of these families, Homeboy Industries that gives people jobs and keeps them from going back to the neighborhood, Toberman Community Center in San Pedro, places like communities and schools in the San Fernando Valley, so many places that work with families that work have worked over five and ten and twenty years and now in Los Angeles we're seeing the fruits of that labor. So does it work? Forty-year low rates of crime. It's coming from many directions. It's got to work and I do believe it does. Now I'm going to ask Wilfredo who I love how he, he described his normal dysfunctional family and I'm going to ask him, do you think it works, what my, my aunt just asked, do you think it works when there's, say there had been intervention in your family when you were young and the domestic violence and the abuse was stopped? And I know that's a hard thing to answer, but imagine. I've got to think about this one. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, it does work. And I just sit here and she mentioned like all these agencies and I'm a domestic violence facilitator today so um, I facilitate these groups with these gang members like they're still active gang members. They hit their woman or the woman hit their man, went to the judge, the judge says you got to do 52 weeks. They come to us and we do 52 weeks with us. We're trained. And what do we teach them? We just teach them these life skills and these coping skills not to hit their women or their men. And then for us, and specifically in the Hispanic and African-American community, and the African-American community also, there's machismo. Do you guys know what that is? Machismo, the man does the, all the bills and then the woman cooks and cleans. So what I do is I get in there and try to break it. And I say, you don't hit the woman, you don't, you don't hit your kids. I mean, my little daughter hasn't had a hand laid on her. And you know, they look at me, my mom even says like, what's wrong with you, you look, you look all big and buff, but you don't discipline her? I said, nah, uh, I don't abuse my daughter. So does it work? Yes, it does. Are we doing it? Yes, we are. We meet it once a month with all the agencies and we talk about what are we going to do to prevent this? And we really do it. It's been going on for years. This is not something new. This has been going on and it's still going on. Are people still doing it? Yes. Are we still serving them? Yes. Are we approved by the probation department? Hell yes. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Great. On that, let's thank them both. Thank you. Really wonderful work. Both of you, wonderful, wonderful work. Really. Um, what I'll do now is I will go ahead and put this table aside. I'll bring out a signing table where um, okay. she'll sit here and uh, sign away. We have lots of books available. We prefer that you uh, buy the books before you get them signed. So now everyone gets all jovial and happy. Oh, look, she signed my book and walk out. Yeah. So <laughs> um, let's make sure that happened. And once again, um, let's, uh, let's thank our guests. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you all. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.